And Father, that's our real need, not to be blown off course, not to be discouraged or embittered with you or anyone else, but to follow you faithfully and to remind ourselves that the challenges and the pain are reminders to turn to you and love you and trust you more. Help this service, help this sermon be a great help in that direction for me and for all of my brothers and sisters and friends in this room. In Christ's name I pray, amen. One of the cruelties of life, I suppose, is as your health begins to fade and age starts to weaken you, that then and only then do you face some of life's greatest challenges. It's not always so. Life can be difficult for anyone at any time. But the experience and the perspective of old age are more than countered sometimes, I think, by failing health. That's what I read in 1 Samuel. I read the life and the words, and I hear the pain in the heart of a man named Samuel. If there were a Mount Rushmore in Scripture, Samuel would be among them in the Old Testament, at least. He was the first of the prophets. There were other men that God had provided. They called them seers that could give individual guidance and hear from the Lord and help people along. But Samuel in the beginning stood quite literally alone as a man who heard from God and spoke to the whole country. He knew its history, and he knew its history had repeated itself, and now he feared that it would repeat itself yet again. You see, if you open your Bible, and I'd actually like you to do this to show you where we are, if you'll open your Bible in the table of contents, the first book is called Genesis, the book of origins. In barely the twelfth chapter of the first book, in Genesis chapter 12, God begins His work with humanity in earnest to redeem us and to save us by reaching down and speaking to a man named Abraham. God spoke to Abraham out of the clear blue through no merit of his own, simply because God loved Abraham graciously and made him a promise, made Abraham a promise the likes of which had never been heard before. He said, Abraham, in spite of your age and your condition, I'm actually going to make you into a great nation. And from your great big family, one will come who will bless all the peoples, all the tribes, all the languages of earth. You're going to bless them all through your family. And the next five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, really are the unfolding of that promise because God did just that. And from Abraham came the 12 tribes of Israel. But then in a moment of need, they took refuge in Egypt, and for centuries, God's people were enslaved. That, read, that led to the rising of another great man under God's care. His name was Moses. He gave Israel the law. He taught them to be separate and holy to Him. He 
on God's behalf, regulated everything about their lives to remind them that they were entirely different from the pagan nations around them. When Israel told their own story, they always hearkened back, they always leaned on the story of the Exodus, how God had rescued a group of beleaguered, embattled, suffering slaves and had taken them out from under the heavy weight of the greatest greatest superpower in the world at that time, mighty Egypt. You can read the Psalms later, and you can hear Israel again and again telling the story of how God rescued them. But Moses, though the meekest man that ever lived, that's what the Bible says, of all the men who had ever lived, this was the most self-controlled and humbled lost his patience with Israel and disrespected God. And in a moment, God said to him, you're not going across the river. I've promised the land to them, but you're only going to look at it. You're going to die on the wrong side of the river. And the people you've led so faithfully to this point, they'll go and enjoy the land, but they'll go without you. That's why if you're looking through your table of contents, the name Joshua appears. Joshua was faithful. He never left Moses' side. He was a worthy successor to this great liberator. And he, with the skill of a military general, with the power of God ahead of him, led Israel into the land and settled them into the land that God had promised to them. Then comes one of the most colorful books in all of the Old Testament, and that's where we begin to understand why the life and work of Samuel was necessary. Even though Israel had God Himself as their leader and king, they were continually looking outside their borders, and as wicked as their neighbors were, and as detestable and barbaric as their practices and their worship were to these false gods, they were always looking at the neighbors and wanting to be like them. They were continually enslaved because of it. And then, tiring of God's discipline at the hands of the people they had wanted once wanted to be like, they would call out to God, and again and again, God would send a rescuer. He called a judge. And if you've read the book of Judges, you know how colorful and bloody and violent it is. I mean, you could make an action-packed movie the likes of which Hollywood seldom makes just based on the book of Judges alone. And it's a continuous and repeating cycle of straying away from God and suffering for it and tiring of that suffering and calling out to Him and discovering that He's willing to forgive and rescue and be, then they are restored and then the cycle repeats itself endlessly until Samuel comes, the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. No one like Him. Blessed from childhood, so that this was said of Samuel, that none of the words he ever spoke, very poetic, very Hebrew, none of the words he ever spoke fell to the ground. In other words, everything he said was true and came true. He was perfectly reliable. Do you know anybody else like that in your life? If nothing else, they're mistaken. If nothing else, they don't know. Not Samuel. He was so close to God and so powerfully used by God that he could be relied upon at all times. And his whole life he led Israel, and then they broke the old man's heart. They came to Samuel one day and said, Samuel, and I'll read it to you, you think I'm joking, but this is how they started. Samuel, you're old. 
and your boys are nothing like you. You've led us well, but your, your kids, they're no good. We want to be like our neighbors again. Please give us a king. A king. See, those of us who have had the privilege of growing up in this country or any other free country have no idea just how bad a monarchy can be. Good king, good days. Bad king, bad days. Samuel knows it. Look with me in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Verse 1, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah, they were judges in Beersheba, one of the main cities of Israel. This is heartbreaking and sad for this grand old man. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. That's always one of the perils of being a spiritual leader. People look for you, look to you for guidance, for comfort, to be turned back to God, and you're interested in your own stuff. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, didn't I tell you? This is not going to be a good meeting. Behold, you are old, your sons do not walk in your ways, and here's the heartbreaking request. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. How could they have ever thought that was a good idea? Their whole history, they've been tormented by kings. Their whole history, they've watched their neighbors destroy themselves and each other, and sometimes Israel because of the wickedness of a king who does not know God, and now they're willing to trade God for a man, and they'll get one. His name will be Saul. He'll be literally head and shoulders taller than all the others. He will be physically imposing, but spiritually empty, a coward. A man who has more fear of the men he leads than of the God he serves, and it will ruin Israel. And Samuel knows it. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Don't miss this. For they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so are they also doing to you. All that history wasted. All those lessons unlearned. And God said, now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And I won't take the time to read it, but that's what he does next. He says, the king will not be what you expect. He'll make your children into his servants. He'll make his, sir, your children into his soldiers. He'll tax you. He'll weary you. You have God. You have no need of a king. 
but they don't care. Look in verse 19. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. A disastrous decision. They're saying, Samuel, we're tired of the God we cannot see. We have our history, we have our stories, we have our names, we know what he's done for us, but we're tired of a leader we cannot see. Give us a man you can put in front of our armies to lead us out into battle. We'll follow him. And Samuel, I think, with some resignation, sends them all home. God says to Samuel, give them what they want. And in 1 Samuel chapter 12, and this is the lesson I have for you this morning. Samuel speaks to Israel for the last time. It's a farewell. I couldn't really call it a benediction or a blessing. It's a warning and a pleading. I can hear this old man's heart in every word and how disappointed and how heartbroken he is that in his old age, after all he had lived with them and all the justice and the goodness he had shown them, on behalf of God, these, this crowd is going to turn their back both on him and on God. But it's not just history. See, I think, and I'm sharing this with you because I think 1 Samuel chapter 12 has a great deal to offer us thousands of years later when we find ourselves surprised that someone we love has walked away from God. It happens. I hear at least one such story every month of every year I've been a pastor. Brokenhearted parents or grandparents. Friends that are shaken to their core because someone who once taught and encouraged them and taught them to follow hard after Jesus now wants nothing to do with them and nothing to do with the Lord. What do you do? Because we've just been singing about all of our days, I will follow you. All my days, I'm going to serve and love you, Lord. But if you've been around church for at least two or three years, you know that it's not always so, that that hope and that, that song is a hope and an aspiration and it's a commitment, but it's not a reality for everyone. I look back just at the people I went to college and seminary with. Many of them who once were recognized as people who could faithfully serve and lead people in a church no longer go to church. They don't believe that the things that they are taught and that they sing about there are true. They've been disappointed, embittered. They've become rebellious and discouraged. They want nothing to do with God. What are we supposed to do? You can't make a story like 1 Samuel chapter 12 stretch far enough and you shouldn't to fit every situation. But there is wisdom in this man. I want you to see how he handled it. 1 Samuel chapter 12. It says, Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed meaning the king. Whose ox have I taken? 
Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. This is daring. Before he ever begins speaking to them about God, Samuel does something I think that's very wise. He begins by speaking of himself. And he says, we've had a long life together. I've dealt with you both nationally and in individual matters. Since we're all here, can any of you accuse me of ever doing one of you wrong? It's quite a challenge. I don't know if you would offer it. I don't know if I would. Here's the point. Here's the wisdom. When you are going after and you are speaking to someone who is walking away from God, the first thing you need to do is what Samuel is doing here. The first thing you need to do is keep your integrity. Samuel is appealing to his long life with them. He's building a bridge. He's building trust into their lives to start with this. Let's be sure. Have I wronged any one of you? Have I corrupted my spiritual leadership? Have I taken anyone's belongings or anyone's money in all the things that you brought to me? Did you ever feel that I was corrupt or that I blinded myself with a bribe given in secret? If so, bring it out. I'll make it right right now. Now, again, I just told you, Samuel is a Mount Rushmore kind of spiritual figure in the Bible. Very few of us who are in pursuit of someone we love who's walking away from God, maybe a child or a grandchild, maybe a friend, would be able to honestly say to them, I've never done anything wrong with you. But integrity is the first step in you helping restore anyone else who has fallen away from God. It's always been so. Look at Galatians 6, verse 1. This is all the way, fast forward to the New Testament. Now, in the Christian church, we're being told how to restore one another. Read this with me, Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Here's the picture. Someone in the family of faith has been pursued and brought down by sin. Those who are spiritual in that family of faith, in that congregation, are to go to that person to do what for him now? What are they supposed to do? Condemn him, write him off, tweet about him, start a prayer chain. Probably a prayer chain, not a gossip chain. That would be a good idea. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit, here's his key, in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Because when someone you love walks away from God, it hurts. And the immediate reaction of someone who is hurting is to hurt back. You do that, you'll make it much harder for them to ever come home. If they're disappointed with God, perhaps they've been embittered by Christians. They come and tell you, I've got a new light, I've got a new revelation, I've got a whole new life. If in that moment you respond with your own pain to lash out, to hurt them, to be harsh with them, that won't be gentle. 
It won't help in any way. It will make it very easy for them to take their eyes off their life and their issues and put them on you and say to themselves, see, this is how they all are. This is exactly why I'm leaving. And very few of us, certainly I, could not say to anyone who knows me very well as Samuel did, tell me if I've ever wronged you. If I said that to the people who know me best, they'd probably say, where shall we start? Would you like an alphabetized list? Would an index be helpful? You can start a spreadsheet and a database if you like. No. It's counterintuitive, but the way to begin, for most of us, to begin to keep hold of that person who is walking away from God may very well be with an apology of our own. By keeping our own integrity, keeping watch on ourselves, lest you too be tempted. What might be, be tempted to? Cruelty. Harshness, judgment, condemnation, self-righteousness, all kinds of temptations rise when someone you love breaks your heart by beginning to walk away from God. Don't do it. There's an illustration I'm reminded of every time I fly because they give us these in-flight briefings right before you take off. And the airline attendant gets up there usually with a little plastic tube and a yellow little cup that's supposed to go over your face. They explain to you that should you lose cabin pressure, these strange looking contraptions will drop from the ceiling above you and you are supposed to use it. What are you supposed to do? Put your own mask on first. If you're traveling Southwest Airlines, good sense of humor, or if you're traveling with a child or someone who acts like a child, please remember to put your own mask on first. <laughs> Well, I got curious as to why that was. So I asked a commercial airline pilot, if it's bad, how long do I have? He said the masks in the cockpit are designed to be donned in less than five seconds. Because if you've lost all oxygen, you'll be impaired very quickly, not be able to think straight. So if you go to help somebody else, you may succeed in helping them and die yourself. Spiritually, it's the same thing. When you enter into this difficult pain of hoping and pleading and restoring someone else to a loving relationship with God, you have to put your own mask on first, and you do that by keeping your integrity and asking forgiveness if it's necessary. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. It's as if Samuel says, okay, that's settled. We both know that I haven't wronged you, that I haven't sinned against you, that I haven't betrayed you as your spiritual leader. You both, you all said that I treated with you integrity. Now, just stand there for a second. And let me remind you, let me tell you of the Lord and the righteous deeds of the Lord that He performed for you and for your fathers. And now He's going to give them a history lesson. Same lesson I gave you to start this sermon, verse 8. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egypts oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, 
And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. These are all the kings in the books of, of Judges that they're preferring, the nations they're preferring over their own God. And they fought against them. And then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Those are male and female pagan deities in the ancient world. But Israel prayed, Samuel says, But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, here's the heartbreaking part, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now, behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. What's he telling them so far? He is reminding them of God's righteousness. Once you establish a loving relationship and you reach out to that person in a spirit of gentleness and you listen, because to me one of the most surprising things in this farewell address is it's not actually a sermon. He's not just telling them off which is the temptation of a person who has been hurt by the decision of another. No, you don't love God anymore? Let me tell you how it's going to be. Let me send you on your way with a firm foot in the backside. Samuel does none of that. He's the last of their judges and the first of their prophets. If anyone is entitled to tell anybody off, it's old Samuel standing in front of faithless Israel. But he doesn't. He listens. He asks questions. He listens to them. He listens from them even at this moment that they've got it wrong. Listening is so important. Listen, when you speak to someone, you may be loving them. It is obviously possible to speak to someone and show them love in that way. But when we're hurt, it's also very easy to wound people, to say harsh things to them, to take hope away from them because we're hurt and we're making it ever harder for them to return. Samuel doesn't do that. He establishes his own integrity and he does so not only by speaking but also by listening. If when you go to confront this person, first do a lot of listening. If you listen to people, they will never doubt that you actually love them. Your words, no matter how well-intentioned, may leave to them the doubt. Do they love me or are they just hurt or are they just angry with me? But listening always communicates love. And Samuel is doing all of that. And now that he's listened and established common ground with them, he begins to tell them of the Lord's righteousness. He says, listen, we've been here before. You're actually just repeating our nation's history. 
we were slaves and you cried out and God rescued you. You settled in the land, but you continually forgot God and you were continually enslaved again. And God continued to rescue you. What is he telling them about God? He's telling them, first of all, that God is always faithful to forgive. People who are walking away from God need to hear that. That God will forgive and love and return to them again and again and again as they turn to Him. He's also saying something important, that God blesses those who serve Him and always opposes those who don't. He's making the stakes clear. And this is one of the great truths of Scripture, which is why we're told repeatedly all across the Bible in the Old and the New Testament that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You want God's blessing? Humble yourself before Him. You want to remove God's blessing and activate God's personal opposition? Bow up. Be proud. Be unteachable. Be harsh. Be self-assured rather than God-assured. This is what He is pleading with them about. Verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your King. Then he says in verse 16, watch this. And here's where the story leaves our lives because you can't do what Samuel did next. Verse 17. Is not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that He may send thunder and rain and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Don't you wish you could do that in these conversations? <laughs> Change the weather to make your point. You can't. But you can remind them of God's faithfulness. And those of you who still have children and grandchildren under your care and influence, if you haven't done that, you should start and do it often. I'm a third-generation Christian, and one of the things that has kept me on the path following Jesus, humanly speaking, is that my parents were very careful my whole life and even now that I have grown children of my own to tell me the story of God's faithfulness in our lives. They never dressed up our family history. I was always crystal clear on how wicked and godless both of my grandfathers were before Jesus intercepted them and changed them. I was heard stories of alcohol and abuse and what today would be called trauma and send people looking for all kinds of different help. I heard those stories all my life. I heard how Jesus changed those men, not entirely. Both of them died before Jesus was done perfecting them to be sure, but it made a difference. 
And in times where I was tempted, where I was hurting, where I was questioning the presence and the power of God in my own life, both my mother and father would continually call back to family stories dating back a previous generation and in the life of our own little family of three to remind me of all that God had done, that God blesses those who serve Him and opposes those who don't. What people need to hear from you is what Samuel is communicating here, that you have hope for them but they're also hearing urgency from you. That this is a life and death decision, that they have set their foot away from God, they're starting down a dangerous path, and that it breaks your heart. And that you don't stand in self-righteous judgment. You do this because you know how faithful God is to forgive, how rich His blessings, but also how painful the consequences when people walk away from Him. The third thing that Samuel is telling them before we're done with this sermon is that God is faithful and loving. Verse 19, the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Samuel said to the people, listen to the hope, listen to the instruction, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Here's the promise on the most important verses in the book. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. 22 is circled in my Bible, I would encourage you that it would be in yours as well because Samuel here is explaining something that the entire Bible tells us, that God forgives and blesses and welcomes people back even after the worst kind of evil, not because they're worth it, but because He's that good. That, as it says in verse 22, God will, the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake. That may seem subtle, it may seem just semantics, but it's vitally important because some of you in this service, just like the other two, will walk in here thinking that your life apart from God and your continual struggle with sin and your continued failure of yourself, God, and others has gotten so old and has made God so tired that He doesn't have time for you anymore. That's how shame and guilt work. They make people who are crushed under the burden of shame and guilt ask themselves, can God ever find it in His heart to forgive me? What they're really asking is, am I worth it? And because we sometimes are quick to withdraw forgiveness from others, we wonder if God is not at least a little bit like ourselves and whether He will tire of us and someday say, not today. God does these things and is these things not for our sake, but for His own. All that God is and all the good things that God does are for His own sake, and that's massively important. And once you see it, you'll see it everywhere in the Bible. Here's the most famous, for instance, it's in the most familiar of all Psalms, Psalm 23. Read this with me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. 
He restores my soul. Quick pause. That's a poetic picture of the provision of God. He takes me in as his own, and I won't lack anything. He makes me rest where there's plenty of food. He takes me to still waters where I can drink and not be threatened with drowning. He restores my soul. Read the last sentence now. It says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Do you see those last few words at the bottom? Why does God do all that? Because He's God. Because He's put His reputation on the line. He has decided to bless you not because of who you are, but because of who He is. And that makes all the difference because He's unchanging and perfect, ever faithful, always loving, merciful, holy, just, all of the goodness that God is. By that basis, He welcomes us and forgives us. That's what Isaiah is explaining later. Listen, I, Isaiah wrote, I am He who blots out your transgressions because you're worth it. Is that what it says? No, it's much better than that. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's the God they need to hear of when they've walked away from him. Not judgment, warning. Not judgment, love. Not judgment, listening. And instruction and hope never take hope away from them because this is how good God is. And Samuel closes with this. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. And then he tells them again, he reminds them of the stakes. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And that's why He says in verse 23, that's why I'm going to keep praying for you. I've heard you. I know what you're saying. You've told God you're done with Him and you're done with me. Curtain's going to fall on me. This is the last time I may have a chance to instruct you, but I won't sin against you by refusing to pray for you. So please, if you're dealing with someone who doesn't know the Lord, never stop praying for them. Never give up. When they have no faith of their own, you keep your faith in God. And don't compound their sinfulness and their foolishness with your own by giving up on them and stop talking to them about the merciful God who loves them and will forgive them perhaps someday, not for their sake, but for his own. What have I been trying to tell you? Simply this, if someone you love walks away from God, you make sure you stay with him and never give up on them. Let's pray. Let's close our service by considering who we should pray for. Listen, maybe your presence here in this room, in this church, represents that you're returning to God. Praise the Lord. Welcome back. Welcome home. Maybe you need to turn to the Lord and confess your sin and ask Jesus to save you. That'd be wonderful. The best possible thing that you could do. 
And many of us will have thought of friends, family members, kids, grandkids, people we love. And it brought back to mind their stories, their faces, their disappointment with God and with us. Pray for them right now, please. Father, maybe hundreds or even thousands of people are represented in the lives of this church family who today are far from you. We plead for them that you would keep us faithful, that you would keep us hopeful and gentle and truthful, that we would be spiritual and right and mature in the matter that we would tell them and remind them of the truth and that we would never, ever, ever give up, never stop praying. For those who may be reconciling themselves with you, thank you. For those who maybe recently have broken our heart, heal us, make us useful, that we would pray for them and not cease until we see you work. I ask this in Jesus' name. Crosspoint said, amen. amen. God bless you.